Welcome to the Living It Up podcast. This is the Living It Up podcast where we explore the changing landscape of competitive golf. In this episode, we talk about Ricky's big win in Detroit, Taylor's win in Valderrama, along with lots and lots of drama outside the ropes with leaked documents and much, much more. But first, this episode is brought to you by B. Dratty, the leader in performance golf apparel. B. Dratty makes the softest polos you'll ever wear, as well as ridiculously comfortable quarter zips, shorts, t-shirts, and even boxers. Their colors and fabrics are all naturally aged by the salt of the ocean for that perfectly lived-in vibe. Head to head to bdratty.com and use code LIVINGITUP30 for 30% off your purchase. This is Brian. I am joined by George and PGA Tour winner Billy Hurley III. Let's kick it to you, George. Is Ricky finally living up to his promotional potential? It looks like Rick is is back. Um, you know, he was in the wilderness for a, a long time. No one could really figure out what was going on. Um, and you know, this year he's kind of slowly been churning up leaderboards. You know, a lot of all of a sudden he was top thirties and then top twenties and then top tens. And now he got it done. I mean, <clears throat> he did. The field was. I mean, there were some dogs in this field that he went and got. So um, it's look. Right now, the PGA Tour, even though we have peace in our time, allegedly, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, you know, he is a guy that makes people feel things. He is beloved. So him winning is is great. He looks good. And I think winning this weekend probably ended the suspense of whether he'd be going to Italy or not. Um, I'd say unless there's like a, a collapse between now and September, um, he's probably very much on that team based on play and just, you know, his locker room presence is, is going to be welcomed in that, that group. So Ricky wins in a playoff, a one, one hole playoff where he made a nice, a nice birdie putt to win over Adam Hadwin and Colin. Brian, you got to be excited about the drop on 18 though. Uh, you know, what's interesting on the, is on the playoff hole, rather, I should I, say. Here, here's what I will say. A, a Mia Culpa, perhaps, because I haven't heard if he also got TIO relief. He definitely took relief from casual water, but dropped essentially on the same hillside. So perhaps it was a little bit muddy or sloshy where people were uh, standing in the gallery. But it was definitely hit kind of off the planet to the right. I was watching it in my favorite way, which is with the sound turned off. Uh, so I thought it was TIO relief. It may have been from casual water, which is what folks on Twitter are saying. But it definitely looked like in the playoff that he hit it off the planet to the right and that he was going to get relief from the grandstands. Uh, either way, he had a great shot in there to, you know, 15, 18 feet and made a really nice putt to win it. So uh, tip of the hat to uh, to Ricky Fowler. And, and like you said, George, he's been playing great and knocking on the door for, you know, essentially all year. So I'm happy for him to get the win. And, uh, you know, it was it was, if nothing else, kind of interesting the way he he won it in the playoff because he hit it off the planet, whereas Hadwin and Morikawa piped it down the middle and hit what they thought were really good shots. Hadwin's kind of, you know, had too much spin on it and came back to 30 or so feet. And Morikawa seemed to miss his shot by about a foot uh, from being, you know, perfect that ended up on the back rough. So uh, again, hat tip to Ricky would take nothing away from the victory because he certainly earned it, but it was a little ironic with the, uh, the hitting it off the planet in, in the playoff. And, and speaking of, of guys kind of maybe, maybe finding it, uh, Morikawa shoots 64 on Sunday to, to go kind of get himself back in that conversation uh, he, he's a guy that's been a little bit, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say he's lost. I mean, he's still top 10 in the world. Um, but he is from, from when he burst onto the scene and looked like this guy could win four times a year in his sleep. 
and pick off at least or contend for majors left, right, and center. Um, him finding form and, and shooting the, that score, you know, also I think, you know, he's another one of those guys that if you asked me today, should he go to Italy? I'd be like, eh, yeah, you could probably convince me otherwise. Or I should say if you asked me yesterday, um, shooting 64 today to kind of really throw himself out there and go go get it where Sunday has sort of been his – where he has done the opposite of that. Um, now it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's put him back squarely in the captain's pick realm of probably looking at a, a trip to Italy. Yeah, so Morikawa was 18th in the OWGR after T2 losing in the playoff. Um, but started the year at 11th, you know, so that's kind of like what you're talking about, George, trying to climb climb back up from that kind of once was kind of, you know, that right in the top 10 OWGR conversation. Ricky's up to uh, 23rd, I think it is. Yeah, so Ricky's up to 23rd with the win. Uh, started the year at 103. So, um, you know, that's that's a pretty good pretty good climb, you know, for, for just, what I mean, it's just the end of June. You know, just just hey, tipped into July, so only only six months into the calendar. That's a that's a good, uh, pretty good run. Speaking of the OGR, do you know who's still number four? Um, does it does it start with P and rhyme with Antley? Sure does. Just just just, like just Patrick Cantley hanging right yeah. in there. Hey, Patrick Cantley, another B dratty guy. We're excited to have. Beedratty as a, a new sponsor of the pod, um, you know, same same family of companies, uh, zero restriction and 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 Beedratty, but um, Beedratty certainly you know does make one of the best shirts, uh, golf shirts out there. Both their uh, Peruvian cotton shirt and their sports shirt are are incredible. You know, ten years ago, Billy Dratty, that's that's Beedratty is Billy Dratty. He started out on a mission to make a superior performance golf polo trading shiny synthetic fabrics for soft organic Peruvian Pima cotton, keeping the details clean and simple. Uh, you know, the, the fabrics are, are comfortable. Boxers are incredible. Uh, I will personally attest to that. That's always on my order um, from, from them. And uh, you can head to bedratty.com, use code livingitup30 for 30% off your purchase. We're excited to uh, have bedratty on the pod for, for quarter three in the, in the summer and fall months. No, that one makes me super excited. Cause I've told you, Billy, that I am always on the quest for the perfect golf shirt. And, and I think I've found one in the sport collection. It has the right weight, particularly for the summertime in mid Atlantic, where it is very, very hot and very, very humid. It's got that right weight and right cut for me. So I'm, I'm super pumped to have B Dratty uh, sponsoring the pod. You know, there's probably a little bit more that we could say about Detroit. And, and one of the things we talked about guys that are ascending Again, this is a, a tournament where not a ton of players, you know, at the top, top of the tier showed up, but there was one that was searching for points, searching for, you know, perhaps some game that has uh, maybe gone away from him. And that is Justin Thomas missing the cut. And again, we're talking about Ryder Cup and we're getting there soon enough. Has he gotten himself into a place where it's like getting some serious question marks? Ryder Cup, we're talking about the FedEx Cup. Like, I mean, you know, he's kind of in that low 60s, you know, he's not guaranteed to to make the playoffs, let alone make the, all the designated events for 2024. I mean, I think that, you know, I you you can't pick Justin Thomas if it were today. Right. I mean, that's just that's that's got to be pretty simple for Zach Johnson. I mean, obviously, there's 
you know, another five, seven weeks um, of play to be had where he could find form and, and prove himself worthy of a captain's pick based on history plus, you know, rounding into form. But but today you, you can't pick Justin Thomas, can you? I don't think I mean, you- it- we'll, we'll see. Time will tell. And I think we've got the open championship and then these, you know, FedEx Cup playoffs for for people to prove that they ought to be there. And I think certainly he's going to have that, uh, you know, he's going to be the guy that is like, you know, prove it to me, like show me in these last few events that you, you earn it or you're, you're worthy of it. Cause right now it doesn't seem like it based on current play. Well, and was it, I don't know if it was the president's cup or the Ryder cup, but didn't speak sit one out where like when he was in the wilderness and just he did miss not... one. I can't remember which one it was, but yes, he did. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, listen, I, the game's better when JT is doing JT things. So, you know, if, he misses this one. Maybe it's not to say he needs a wake up call or he's doing some frivolous things or, or doing making poor choices, but you know, maybe that's sort of the fire that gets him kind of back to doing JT things. Cause you know, when you're at that level, I don't want to think these guys take it for granted. They're always going to play them, but you know, as, as an athlete who, you know, every, every athlete has a moment, where things are great and they get a little humbled. And uh, this this could be – it's it's horrible in the moment, I'm sure, for him. He's super frustrated. But, you know, it could be a net benefit for him down the stretch if, if he can't turn it around. Or maybe Captain Zach Johnson is looking across to his new friends from the Live Golf League and saying, hey, this guy Taylor Gooch is pretty good. He's won now his third Live Golf event of the year at Live Golf Andalusia – at the Valderrama club. And it's one of those things where, again, people will often on Twitter or elsewhere joke and they'll say, what does it mean? What does it mean for him to win L live event, much less three. And they'll joke about the competition and they'll, they'll kind of belittle a win. But I mean, it's hard to argue. He's putting up the numbers and he's beating Cameron Smith. He's beating Brooks Kepka. He's beating Dustin Johnson. He's beating Patrick Reed. Like he's beating high caliber players that are also playing well. And so he's going out and getting it done. And so again, while there is kind of quote unquote peace in our time, we will see. I'd have to imagine like Zach Johnson might think about it right now. I'm not saying that he's he's itching to make that selection, but if, if Taylor Gooch plays well in the open championship, like, I don't know, might have some serious uh, considerations. And, and let's not overlook that Valderrama is a big boy course. Like that's, that's not Detroit Country Club. That is a the Ryder Cup course. course. Yeah, I mean it's narrow. I, I was watching some of it on TV, just looking at the, the tree line fairways and everything else, thinking like, "Oh man, it, most of those tee shots do not look super inviting." Um, and yeah, I mean you, you can't take it away from Taylor. He is he is playing good golf. Um, you know, it's worth pointing out. I think the winning score at Detroit was twenty one under. I know that's four days, not three, but I think the winning score for Valderrama was eight or nine for three days. Um, I think it was, you know, it, it, the course stood up much more than uh, I'd say Detroit stood up. Yeah, and obviously, you know, the, the the counterpoint to that, George, is that it's 48 guys, not 156. So, you know, scores are going to be kind of, higher relative to par or, or just higher in general, right? I mean, like any time, like if you have a hundred guys, the cut's going to be one stroke worse than if you have 156 guys. So, you know, it, 
I don't know. I I mean, like, there's I, no question Valderrama's a, a a we'll call it a more proper golf course than you know Detroit Golf Club, and you know just from a I mean, Detroit's a, a country club, right? I mean, like, so it just is a, you know, it's kind of that feel and that, that length of golf course. And, and it's an old school Donald Ross. That's, you know, a, a good classic golf course, but it is, you know, short par fives, you know, that, that, that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's a, it's a 20 under winner. I think it's, you know, I shoot, I think it might've been 24, you know, a couple of years ago and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, and Valderrama is probably a better big boy golf course. That's, that's for sure. But, but I think that I, I just will say, you know, a, a smaller field equals, you know, not as low of a score winning the golf tournament. Yeah. And just to to look at the scores, 24 under went to the playoff between uh, Ricky Fowler, Adam Hadwin and Colin Morikawa, 12 under wins it by a shot over Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka three shots back, but then you look down the leaderboard and guys were at, you know, six and four and three under par still in the top 10. So certainly seemed like a more stern test for sure. Yeah. And I think that that small field really shows up in the top 10. You can make a case that maybe the winning score is the same, you know, cause somebody's still going to go out and really have a great week because you have a lot of good players still there. Um, the, the top 10 is probably where, where some of that, you know, shows up that if it were a, you know, 12 under winner with a 156 man field, you know, seven eight under it's going to be your top 10 but not three under kind of kind of, kind of thing so and let's actually i was gonna say let's let's also tip the cap to live handing out slow play penalties love to see it i'm very yeah. confused by that because there was no mention of a warning in the in the release so so i didn't quite under i mean i know they were on the clock for like six holes based on it but i but there was no mention of a of a of a warning time like it was kind of written as if it was his first bad time and he got a stroke. Yeah, I was Richard, Richard Bland. Well. This I, is. I did see the note that came out. Slugger White famously, you know, has been a PJ Tour rules official for Billy could tell us how long, probably decades and 40 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's one of those things where they they brought him in to provide some kind of rules credibility to a degree and, and enforcement. And they noted that uh they were on the clock and they noted that he took 84 seconds when on the clock. So you are notified that you're on the clock and he took 84 seconds to hit a T ball and then was notified that he was assessed a stroke penalty. I, I quipped on Twitter, you know, live leading the way with allowing shorts and now enforcing slow play. Like it, it can be done, you know, PJ tour, come on, you can do this too. Yeah. Things you love yeah. to see. Did you guys watch the clip of that? Cause I watched the, the, the clip of him hitting this tee shot on this, 15 or this, 16 or as whatever a, it was. As a point of order, that was, that ended yeah. up not being the right clip. The the guy that posted it, took okay. it and said, sorry, wrong clip. I was like, this I, guy is like Moses on the clock. Oh, I have my, I didn't have my stopwatch out, but I was like, uh, it looked like he took, took his range finder and then looked at his yardage book and then pulled a club. Like that certainly didn't look slow to me, but the guy said, no, sorry, wrong clip. Oh no. I, I mean, I saw one that was definitely a long time. Um, so I don't know which, which clip I saw, but it, but it makes more sense than maybe it, because well, I mean, I guess if you take 84 seconds, like you're obviously don't care that you're on the clock, you're not even trying at that point. That was, uh, I, uh, slow play penalty. I, uh, played an open championship with a, with a very young kid. It might've been his, you know, it's definitely his first major probably is he may have just turned pro or he kind of went through the British open qualifying, which is, which is actually coming up, you know, I think it's going on kind of right now um, or next week. And 
he uh he took like over 60 seconds to lay it up on a par five right after we were notified that we were on the clock and speaking of slugger white i spent the walk up from the tee shot to the second shot giving slugger an earful about how just this kid should be on the clock and then slugger you know runs off to time him we hit our couple shots we hit our third shot in and uh, he comes up to me and says i guess i see what you were talking about well, again, we could spend a long time talking slow play like like we have in the past, but just things you like to see, enforcement of the rule. Let's let's see more of that across across golf. But there there was obviously a lot going on outside the ropes, and the first thing I thought we would tackle is, you know, like clockwork as as happens in the DC area, as soon as uh, the PGA Tour provided some confidential documents to Congress to comply with the Senate subcommittee investigation, they were summarily you know leaked to to the media and we were able to actually get our first eyes on the quote unquote framework agreement. And I thought the most remarkable thing was, you know, if you ask the question, like, what did we learn? I would argue in substance, not a whole lot. Like it, we, we thought when this thing was announced on June 6th, that it seemed Spartan in terms of detail. And yes, it was a framework and yes, there was going to have to be an agreement, a definitive agreement later on. But it seemed like there must have been more there that they were only saying in the press release and in their you know media inquiries a, a little bit. But then you read this document, you're like, nope, we, we pretty much knew mostly all of it. There were a few notes around uh, you know non-disparagement clauses. We learned that they have until the end of the year, so the 31st of December, to actually strike a definitive agreement. And George, I'll kick it to you because there was a lot of good faith and other terms used like you know, good in good faith, we will do the following. In good faith, we we will do this. And I'll kick it to you by asking, like, what does that actually mean in the legal sense? Like, how does one define the good faith that the PIF and the PJ Tour and the DP World Tour now need to undergo across these various areas? I, I mean, it, it's sort of common sense. Uh, it's a way of, I guess, making it sound more artful than basically like, look, hey, don't, no one's going to be an asshole anymore. Um, and you've got to come with ideas. You've got to respond to ideas, you know, obviously move things along. So, you know, let's say they start putting together all of these subsequent documents and agreements. You can't sit on it for a month and then come back, you know, with, with stuff or add just like harebrained things that were very clearly never contemplated in what people were talking about to reach the first agreement. So it's, it's, it's really just like, Hey guys, we're, we're going to start working together. Um, and again, like that good faith thing. So you know, the, the big one, obviously, because everyone got really excited. Um, you know, you saw the, the live kind of Alan Shipnuck's article where like, we're going to go get wrong. We're going to get all these guys. And it's like, no, you're definitely not. There's no recruitment. You know, everyone's kind of status quo till the end of the year. I did find it interesting that December 31st sort of like, hey, we're either doing this or we're not by December 31. Now, I will say it's an agreement between three parties. So if on November 15th, if things are moving, but they know it can't be done by 1231, you know, no one's going to be sitting there sweating, typing feverishly until 1159 on New Year's Eve, trying to like, we have to get this in or it's all over. Um, they can always agree to extend that deadline. Um, and, and what'll be interesting to see is, you know, okay, what the real thing will be is how does 
how does it all fold in? You you saw there was a lot of press this week from um, like the the Andalusia travel board explaining why they sort of made this switch to live. They're very excited. I think it was like a five year deal. Like they're they're all in on this and expecting it to go forward for multiple years. So I do think people who have said Jay's just going to kill live and that's the end of it. I think that's probably premature. I think we're going to see somehow a schedule between the PGA, the DP and live that makes sense. And I think we're going to see some fluidity between the tours. And I, I don't know what, what that is going to look like. Um, you know, we, in more information that came out, you know, Peter Malinati, I guess there was a pretty big players uh, or a, a pack meeting. And no, it was a Peter policy Malinati, board meeting. It was like a 12 hour policy board meeting. Apparently, right. so you know, policy- one, one lunch and two five minute bathroom breaks and they yeah. were there till 8 PM or something. So, and, and Peter Malinati came out of that kind of hot, uh, made some, some comments. And, you know, the, the interesting thing that I took, which will be, Curious to see how it plays is, you know, he made a comment of like, hey, there's some guys that are out for blood. They sued like the people who sued us like that. We are pissed. And, you know, I think a lot of players, because so many things are unknown, I think there's still a lot of anger, confusion about how this whole thing came together and was announced that, you know, the the players kind of got blindsided by it. It sounds like everybody got blindsided by it, except for Jimmy jay keith and um you know i guess hurley he um and and yasser so i guys are talking a lot more candidly there's a lot fewer talking points <laughs> anymore so it, it's really interesting to see and i i will be curious to see how if they say hey we've got to make this work you know i think the tour can definitely say hey we some of these guys on live make our sponsors happy if they show up to events. Um, Yasser obviously is still writing big checks and he wants his live thing to, to look good and, and do well. So it'll be really interesting to see how this ultimately all comes together um, because it is, there is still so much to figure out and so much of the rhetoric and bad blood to unwind and and time has a way of helping a lot of that um as does money as people have talked about you know making players whole who turn down contracts and things like that and look i have to imagine there there have got to be a handful of guys very prominent on the tour who fell in line and are like well i should have just taken the money like well, of course there it. are. Of course there are. But like, to me, it's just the dumbest argument I've heard. It, it's like you made a business decision for yourself, like own your own decisions. You're an independent contractor. You know, I mean, like if you got you got a I mean, there's nobody on the PGA Tour that promised you that money. Right. Like, like right, they, but- they very clearly stood up and said, hey, we actually can't match that money. So play over here, you know, for something bigger than money right right and And that's where i think like adam scott though like his comment of like man we were told we could never come back we were told this is a bright line and we will not and so it's like you know it went into the calculus and 
And like he was one as people were speculating names and everything else that looked and like, you know, he's he's Australian. He lives in like he's based out of Zurich, which kind of crazy for a professional golfer, but I guess that's where his wife's from or whatever it is. Um, and it was always like, man, this actually seems like he would fit his life more. And I mean, he I, I think the way that he talked about him, there was a lot of guys that looked like they'd seen their dog get shot when they were talking about how this deal and what they're trying to unwind and unpack. And I, I think the guys who seem the most confused and sullen, I'm going to make the assumption they had a packet that they were reviewing and they listened to Jay and Tiger and made a choice. And they are now like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that today. Yeah, no, there's no question that, you know, when you start talking about the Adam Scotts of the world, right, they, they had an offer in front of them. And, you know, then they had Jay Monahan sit in front of them and and say, don't do it, man. Like there's the, you know, X, Y, and Z, like, you know, I mean, obviously Jay's pleading his case just to, you know, save his, save the PGA tour in a sense if you know, if they lost too many more people um, and then, you know, probably continuing this, like, you don't want to do this with the PIF. You don't want to be involved with Saudi Arabia. You don't want to be, X, Y, and Z. I can only imagine that's what Jay's pitch or anti-pitch, so to speak, was to to guys like this. I mean, there's, you know, they were getting pitched, the Adam Scotts of the world getting pitched by Liv. They were getting counter-pitched equally by the PGA Tour. And and I have no question that, no question, no doubt in my mind that Jay Monahan flew to Zurich or wherever Adam Scott was and said, don't do this, right? And And to a number of, you know, tens of others of players who, so, so I get their point. Right. That they were kind of I mean, they were promised nothing. They were just asked to kind of, quote, do the right thing and say with the PGA Tour. And now the PGA Tour is saying, well, the the right thing, the goalpost just moved. And and so now we're going to do something different. So I get that. But I just I think this made whole thing stupid. Like you 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 get to make business decisions for yourself. You get to decide what law firm you're going to work for, George. You get to decide what tech company you're going to work for, Brian. Like, I, you know, like this is just. To me, it's 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 like, I, I mean, I can see rewarding loyalty in some other way, but like this make whole thing is just ludicrous to me. Yeah, I, I'm there with you, Billy. I think time will tell like how guys might be quote unquote made whole. Like there could definitely be some concessions in terms of the for-profit entity and how equity is awarded or how different, uh, you know, I don't know if they would would allow uh, you know appearance fees and those and those sorts of things going forward, but you could imagine that there could be ways to sort of you know have the have the accounting of those guys that were most injured by uh, the badgering to not take the offer are are you know made whole to a degree on that. Uh, I want to go back to the agreement though because to me it was shocking how much still needs to be worked out, and that's kind of why I asked my question about good faith, George, because I I wonder in a game theory sort of way which side or or how each side may have gamed out the what if this thing falls through and what does it mean to me if and when this were to fall through whether that is because the players push back and say nope we we will not collectively approve this deal as written or what have you or you know the the US regulatory bodies the DOJ or the FTC or the US Congress steps in and says nope we're not going to allow this sort of you know, foreign money to take over a U.S. institution like the PGA Tour? Well, I can tell you, I mean, if if what we're seeing in documents and everything else that's coming out and what we've heard is 
the PGA Tour and DP World Tour absolutely positively have to make this deal happen. Um, 100% right. They, they, one, had to come out on TV and walk back a year of rhetoric and everything else. They had to basically light their trust between their play with their players on fire. Um, and I don't know that they have a plan B if this doesn't work. Conversely, Liv and the PIF can just carry on and they can certainly say, here's the big checks now, boys. Who's coming over? And I think you would find the yeses would strongly outweigh the noes this time around. Because remember, we'll be through year two, and I think there was, I think it's been shared or it's gotten out that, you know, a handful of the contracts were two-year deals. So, you know, you've got openings. It's come out that three of the teams still don't have an equity captain. So that's three spots conceivably of big money that could still get handed out. You know, there's going to be some relegation. There's still going to be some movement. So, I mean, if we have to sit and think the game theory, the game is the PGA Tour has to do this. And that's where I still think Yasser holds cards to make sure live, which if you, the articles, and I think Alan Shipnuck's written the most on it, and he's had the most access, that Yasser really, really wants this to work. And this was his, he was driving a lot of this. And I think it's, he's going to say, cool, how do you fold this into your world? Yeah, I agree with that. If you're, if you're gaming this from a PGA Tour boardroom, you have to go through with it. it. It just doesn't make sense to get to the end of this and go, you know what? It actually doesn't make sense for us. So you send Yasser back to his corner with infinity dollars and, you know, let him run live some more. Um, it, it doesn't, to me, that doesn't make sense. It does. It just as a, as a game theory exercise, Brian, it doesn't make sense. So you're going to like, uh, you know, anger the guy who has infinity dollars and you're right, George, like the yes is the second time around now that the PGA tour has kind of turned their back on, you know, it feels like they've turned their back on you that stayed loyal. What's going to make you think they're not going to do that again. What's going to make, you know, all these different things. It just, it doesn't make sense to send live back to be their own entity and, and just throw more and more dollars at it and take more and more players. If you're, if you're the PGA tour. So I think it's ludicrous for, for PGA tour players to sit here and say, well, if we don't want it to happen, it's not going to happen. And that I think is a good segue into the Peter Malnati interview. I would encourage everybody uh, to go read this interview with uh, Alan Shupak, because I think there's a lot of questions and answers that to me are getting at like a player's reconciliation with one being surprised two sort of coping with the news and sort of unpacking what this would mean for them long-term and then coming to a conclusion, essentially that's, that's what you've stated, Billy, which is like, it's not the best deal, perhaps, but the alternative of not taking this deal is unpalatable. So I wanted to read, actually, the first and the last question. I encourage everyone to go take a look at the entire interview. But the first question was, what were your big takeaways from the board meeting? And Peter Manali said, one thing that was very clear is that the PJ Tour players feel betrayed and feel like they don't have the ownership or control of the tour 
They should for a member-owned organization. That was extremely clear and both sides understand that. Player directors in the room, the tour itself and the independent directors of the board. That is very well understood right now. And I feel there was some genuine contrition on the part of the, part of the tour. Like they understand the players feel like they have been betrayed, let down and in a position where they have absolutely no control of an organization they supposedly own. And so that was the first sort of coping of this was complete shock. This felt like a betrayal and they're going to have to re-earn our trust. And the last part of the, the, the interview was this question. Is there a deal where everyone wins? And Peter said, we could execute this perfectly. There's still going to be a handful of members that are like, quote, well, what about the 9-11 families, unquote? And what a great point they're going to have. We could do absolutely nothing. We could say, we don't want to do this deal at all. We want nothing to do with it. And 200 people at the PGA Tour office would lose their jobs. The tour could shrink. And we could have less members playing for less money. And the bottom of the tour could fall off. And now we're going to be attacked for that. You could look at it as a no-win situation because you're always going to have people that are disappointed and people can attack. And to me, that was actually a summation of the shock the dealing, the grappling with all of it and coming to a conclusion of like, yep, we're, we have put ourselves into a corner. And the only way out of that corner is to accept or try to make more palatable this deal on behalf of players. This episode is brought to you by B Dratty, the leader in performance golf apparel. 10 years ago, B Dratty started out on a mission to make superior performance golf polos. They traded shiny synthetic fabrics for soft organic Peruvian Pima cotton and kept the details clean and simple. Today, Bidratti still makes the softest polos you'll ever wear, as well as ridiculously comfortable quarter zips, shorts, t-shirts, and even boxers. Their colors and fabrics are all naturally aged by the salt of the ocean for that perfectly lived-in vibe. Head to bidratti.com and use code LIVINGITUP30 for 30% off your purchase. Thanks to our friends at Bidratty for their support of the Living It Up podcast. And that's what I thought was going to happen from the jump. You know, as soon as this was announced, you know, it, people kind of go spinning with emotion and and then they come back to their senses and realize, well, this is actually how this has to go now. And, and I, I struggle with this because like people are like the PGA tour is a membership owned organization and, and it is, it's a 501 C6, right? It's a membership organization and the players are supposed to be in control. The players are only in control of the inside the ropes piece of this. Okay. Like there's very little from a commercial standpoint that the players control. And so that's just a that's just a reality of this right there are no real businessmen that are players you know that have, that have mbas that like sit and think through all this stuff and 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 whatever and it's kind of been understood that even on the policy board from from my understanding that like when it comes to the business stuff we let the independent directors do that and when it comes from comes to the inside the ropes policies the independent directors let the player directors do that. And they kind of just, you know, vote together, you know, in that, in that way. And, and we're just acknowledging who the subject matter experts are in those, in those pieces of the puzzle. So, you know, there's a, you know, been around long enough to realize that this thing's actually not run by the players in, in total kind of, kind of piece of this puzzle. And, and, and Peter's been around long enough to know that. And, um, and, and now it's his first, you know, 
six months, you know, sitting in the boardroom. So, he, you know, he's getting, you know, a, a, a hefty deal of, of, of board stuff that he didn't probably sign up for in total. But um, some, of, some of this stuff to me is just like, yeah, no kidding. Like the, the players didn't own as much as they thought they did. Right. Cause there's like business people doing real business deals, you know, to, to, to make the PGA tour go around. Well, they don't know anything anymore. Well, and that's the biggest piece of this, like, and this is not new, you know, you, Brian, you say like, what did we learn from the leaked document? Well, we learned very little because it was all spelled out in the, in the framework kind of, you know, agreement release. And, and you're exactly right, George, the, the PGA tour, the 501c6 really owns nothing. All the commercial assets are going to be transferred into new company, right? Which we've now learned is tentatively called PGA Tour Enterprises, and and so the um, the the PGA Tour as a as a membership organization, they they don't own anything. So I don't know how they can think that they're in control of anything. There's not going to be players, as it's been laid out, that are on the PGA Tour Enterprises board. It's still going to be the PGA Tour Policy Board that has, you know, just the, that has the players and the independent directors adding Yasser as one of those independent directors now. So it's ludicrous to me to think that the, you know, PGA Tour players think they're going to have more control. I mean, this is Ron Price's, a quote from a, a recent article, Ron Price, the COO of the PGA Tour, talking about the 501c6 status. He says the tour itself will become, quote, a regulatory body that oversees the sport. So it clearly qualifies under 501c6, even more so than it does today, because all commercial activity has been moved out of it. It's simply overseeing our competitions going forward, unquote. So if you take five players and say, that's now what you have control of is the competition. It's basically what I just described. The player directors kind of have the inside the rope stuff and the independent directors have the business stuff. Now that's being moved to a new entity. All that business stuff is being moved to a new entity. So I just find it comical, unless they're going to reveal some new piece that like has not been talked about yet. I find it comical that we continue to say that the PGA Tour players will have control over this organization because they won't. So then it begs the question, Billy, in a membership organization, you don't need a union because your, your tour, the PGA Tour, you know, represents the players and, and by definition, like there's no union, there's no owner or there's no union needed because there is no owner in this new world of Nuco, PGA Tour Enterprises, super inspiring name, by the way, now that it will be the owner of all these commercial assets, does it beg the question that maybe a, a union or a player's organization, a player's association is needed because that's been rumored to be sort of things that players are pushing for now behind the scenes? Yeah, right. There's the the Patrick Cantley article. Uh, it was Eamon Lynch um, kind of disparaging him a bit for for even like broaching this subject, which I think is ridiculous. Because yes, there needs to be somebody who's looking out for the players, right? I mean, like if you're a player and you just had the 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 thing you thought you owned, right? You thought that you were like the driver of this enterprise. <laughs> not to, well, it's the wrong term now. But not of of the PGA Tour, which which I'm a I'm a member of, you know. It, then now that's been taken away, just like you said, Brian. And and so you need somebody thinking about the best interest of the players, who's who's thinking about the best interest collectively of the players, right? So so Jay Danzy's gonna be in Patrick Cantley's ear and Jordan Spieth's ear and and kind of give them some sense. I mean of 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 what 
this stuff looks like, but they're not going to get all the information. You know, David Winkle is going to be in the ear of his guys and uh, Steve Loy will be in the ear of his guys. But, but, but these guys are actually like, they're, they're agents. They're actually, I mean, a couple of them, some of them are lawyers. Some, many of them aren't. And, and so they've been doing like contract deals to get their players more money not business deals to start new ventures. I mean, some of them as they look at bigger businesses for Phil and, you know, Dustin Johnson and some of the bigger names that they have, even Patrick Cantley, Jordan Spieth, like, you know, those, those guys that are getting, you know, bigger and bigger and have some more money to invest in different things. I'm sure they're helping them look after that to some degree, but they probably have other people that kind of do some of that business stuff in their offices. So yeah, I think there's gotta be somebody who's like really looking at this, from a player perspective, because I mean, ask yourself the question is, is Jay Monahan is Tyler Dennis is Ron price or is Jimmy Dunn? Are they going to give you all of the information you need to make a good decision? I can't say that that answer is yes. I, I mean, I, I know all of those guys. I like all of those guys and, and I respect all of them as they do their jobs well in, you know, along the PGA tour and outside the PGA tour in Jimmy Dunn's case. But at this moment, you have to be saying like the tour clearly needs this to go through. Is it good for me as a player? Is it good for us as players? Right. It might be good for Rory and it might be bad for Peter Malnati. It might be good for Patrick Cantley and it might be bad for Adam Hadwin. Right. It might be good for Ricky Fowler and it might be, terrible for uh rookie number 17 right and so who's going to kind of take a look at this as a i mean player representative player representation um you know really diving into the details of all these documents and all the you know new company pga tour enterprises stuff and, and how that crossover is going to work to the PGA Tour Incorporated 501c6 and 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 how that structure is going to go. I, I think, I mean, if, if Patrick's calling for that, for somebody to, to, to an independent organization, an independent review of this stuff on behalf of the players, then he's absolutely right. Yeah, and this was one where, you know, you noted, Billy, that Eamon Lynch came out with this article that looked at the speculation of, Patrick Cantlay sort of leading what he called a, a coup d'etat, right? Sort of getting players to, to maybe understand that they have some power and they ought to form a union, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where Eamon Lynch, I often think, just tries to be too cute by half and use a thesaurus or chat GPT or whatever he uses to help write his articles, where he just puts a bunch of extemporaneous adjectives in there and tries to, you know, kind of be disparaging to your point. Like, he talked about Patrick Cantlay, who carries himself with the assurance of a man convinced he'd be a partner at Goldman Sachs if he wasn't merely sporting its logo. And just he he took it, I think, a little bit too far for someone that if if the speculation or rumors are true, that what he's trying to do is, you know, sort of lobby on behalf of players to get representation and to maybe have a union or an association that represents them going forward. It doesn't seem like a, a bad idea. And, and Eamon, I think, has taken it too far. You saw Adam Scott sort of clap back in in a, in a tweet and say, you know, this isn't a time for for, you know, people to be disparaging. It's time for people to treat these issues as serious issues where we need time and we need to be able to consider all the angles. 
And a lot of players sort of, you know, jumped on on behalf of Adam Scott and in praising his kind of clap back of Eamon Lynch. So again, a lot of a lot of drama outside the ropes uh, for, for this one. Well, and I I mean he's Cantley to the extent of the, the players should have effectively an independent representation on behalf of all of the players to see what this does, what it means. It he he's absolutely correct. I mean, I I advise clients on transactions and business things all the time. And there are certain times where like we will go hire an expert in whatever field it is because you know it's out of my depth to understand the the specific nuances uh, of someone who's selling their their medical practice into uh you know these these roll-ups that are happening now and we're like we went and got a consultant specifically like what does this mean how does this really play out um and and so Cantley is a hundred percent correct and the players He's and he's right to the extent he's saying, "Hey, we we actually have some leverage because the all the assets that are going into PGA Tour Enterprises or whatever this entity will be called are worthless if the players don't show up." And you know, it'd be weird to think about having a strike in golf, but the reality is the the players at the end of the day, and this is what Yasser I think saw. The players are the asset and everything else is just marketing to make money showcasing that asset. Um, and I, I think there's, there's a lot to happen and, you know, there's, there's been speculation about it. I, I think one of the things that would probably go a very, very long way to helping the players is if, and you know, we'll say a Goldman Sachs comes in to to analyze and look at this deal, not and not as per se be antagonistic to Jimmy Dunn and Hurley He and those guys, but definitely they're not friends. Like these these guys are making decisions that will significantly affect the livelihoods of these players and they will. And I know Jimmy said up, down, left, right. He's not going to, he's not getting a penny on this deal and nobody short of, you know, people in the clergy get out of bed for no money every day. Um, And I just can't, I just think the players absolutely need someone on their end and candidly it probably needs to be someone who's not affiliated with tomorrow the the tiger woods roy thing not affiliated with jimmy not affiliated with yasser like truly independent totally and i think you can make a case that the live guys need their own representation because they're going to get you know what happens to to them kind of as this thing rolls back up or, or whatever so you know, they might need an independent you know look from from a different angle you know and um yeah it, it's really interesting because this is kind of the first time in modern history of golf that like the, the that the players are are being viewed as the asset or or at least being acknowledged as the asset um 
and 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 it and it just has this feel it has this feel like it shouldn't be that way like this is the gentleman's sport we should all just be happy to be here you know like it's um we're not business people that are trying to actually feed families and and make money like other sports i mean guys are like you know they are the asset in other sports and teams do things to you know court them and to to make them want to play for their team to make their lives better x y or z team cultures those types of things and um it just strikes me that because of the gentlemanly nature of of golf um in no way excluding females from that but just that you know ladies and gentlemen type thing um that it's not the players aren't supposed to stick up for themselves, right? They're just supposed to say, we're happy to be here. Tell us, tell us what my tea time is on Thursday. Well, and that, that's the, the part I think that's also makes golf extremely unique is you affect the PGA tour is effectively a league of 200 teams. Um, you know, and you know, I, I don't know if it's the best analogy, but I can't imagine all the NFL owners would be really excited if um, Roger Goodell showed up and said, Hey, I just struck a deal and we're merging with the, you know, the English premier league. It's all going to be great guys deal details to come, but it's, we're, we're cool now, right? Like um, yeah, they would flip out and rightfully correct. so. Correct. And, and so just, to me, you know, the other the, the other thing that, that that's been not in the news, kind of halfway in the news, is we still haven't heard from Jay Monahan. It's been three weeks. We haven't heard anything about his situation other than it's, you know, the Monahan family has asked for privacy. And I fully respect that. Like I don't know what's going on um, you know, with with Jay and what his medical situation was, but I will just if you start to game theory that out and take that to an end game there are becoming not a whole lot of good options there either, right? Either this is a fairly serious medical thing um, that, that nobody wants to talk about. There's no been no statement about, you know, you know we're, we're told he's doing okay and recovering, but um, so that's not a good end game if this was a if this was a, a massive heart attack, right? Like that actually becomes kind of a liability now as your commissioner having health issues, right? So so what happens the next time if he has another health issue, right? It's starting to become a little bit of a you think about that as a liability down the road from a board perspective. I mean, if your CEO is not a healthy person, you start to think about that as a board of like secession planning. And so where's that? And then if you go the other way and say he's just hiding in a bunker because it's like just time to stay out of the spotlight, also very bad, right? Like who is who's who's running the the show? Who who put him in the bunker? Why is he you know there? And and I, I mean I'm not gonna I have no idea which of those it is. I'm gonna take the PGA tour at this point at their word that it is a medical situation. But both of those things become a liability down the road. And and I think you know. Um, I can't remember. It may have been, I can't remember who it was or if it was in an article or just in conversations I've had with players, but saying that we need to hear from our commissioner very soon. Yeah. I do think three weeks is bordering on, you know, sort of like there needs to be a more robust statement or 
plan there, at least a date we used to call it all the time, a date for a date. If you tell me he is coming back on the 10th of July, that goes a long way toward understanding where we are in this whole thing, because this is related to, uh, you know, Senator uh, Blumenthal had requested that Greg Norman, Jay Monahan, and Yasser Al-Ramayan report to Congress and talk about this deal on the 11th. So in, in eight days from now, and just today, it was noted that the PGA Tour came back and said, uh, nope, you're not going to get Jay Monahan because he's got a medical issue and you're not going to get Greg Norman or Yasser Al-Ramayan because of scheduling difficulties. And instead, you're going to get the COO of the PGA Tour, Ron Price, and the board member who brokered this deal, Jimmy Dunn, on July 11th. And thus far, we've heard that that's okay with uh, Senators Johnson and Blumenthal. And so that's what we're going to see on July 11th. We'll, we'll be able to look forward to that. But I agree with you, Billy. It's getting to the point where we want to respect his privacy, of course, and we hope, you know, nothing is, is, you know, permanently wrong or, you know, you know, we hope he recovers for sure. But there comes a time when you just need to provide some information or provide some clarity on the future of who, who's in charge. Hey, I got a question, Billy, and this is sort of the mechanics of the tour. Who did have the players ever had the ability to basically take a vote and fire the commissioner? So if I'm honest, I've never read the bylaws, like the, the actual organizing documents, you know, um, of the PGA Tour. So I don't know, like, where that stands. I, at my, if I, you know, um, my hunch is, is that that's a, a, you know, we've elected, the players have elected five, um, well, four players of the five to, to to be on the board that are on the board today. And, and so it's kind of like their job for that, right. That would be like the, the board's job, um, to, to hire and fire commissioners. So, um, it would be more on the, so I don't think that, I don't think the players as a whole have, have a, have a voting power. It's more of the player directors who have been elected by the players as a whole to kind of represent on the on the policy board side of things. And speaking yeah, of the board composition, it is five independent directors, five player directors. Is that true, Billy? Each yes, that's correct. Vote. And then there is one non-voting member, which is the head of the PGA of America. Is that correct? Correct. And so in the event of an impasse, like could this be the case where the five independent directors approve a definitive agreement in the future and the five player directors say, nope, it's not going to happen. No, my understanding is that you you can only have one dissension by the bylaws. So so you're going to need to get like that was part of the designated event change was, you know, um, when when Malnadi kind of went into the boardroom, you know, famously now going to vote against this. Um, that really didn't matter. But if you were able to bring one more person with him, then it would have mattered, at least in the sense that it couldn't have been ratified at that point. I don't know if there's then if that just makes it a a third discussion kind of thing has to go to another board meeting and then, you know, 60% of the vote wins or something. I, I don't, I don't know what the mechanics um, of that are, but I don't think, you know, that I think if it were an impasse five and five, it, obviously it wouldn't pass. Yeah. It just, it just always seemed given the way that Jay handled all of this, it was. It struck me as wildly presumptuous that he's just going to be the CEO of the whole new thing, as though he owned golf and he's he can just say that I'm still going to be the king of it. It's it's always struck me as kind of weird. And, and so that actually leads us to to maybe the one last big sort of outside the ropes piece of news that dropped, and it was 
you know, a set of documents initially, I will say air quotes leaked by uh, one desert duffer on Twitter, where he showed a, a number of documents, the first of which was actually a PGA tour strategy memo that outlined a proposed takeover, if you want to call that of the DP world tour, the European tour, you could actually argue the way that it was written is more of a, uh, a liability like that, that they were basically acknowledging that the European tour, the DP world tour was a distressed asset and they were going to take over liabilities for 13 years and, and basically pay off their debt facility and take on, you know, purses and things of that nature. And the second document that they shared was actually talking points to ironically a, a last year's travelers, the travelers of 2022's players meeting where one Tiger Woods had some proposed talking points. And one of the more interesting things about this is that this was not a leak. This was actually part of a, a Freedom of Information Act, uh, you know, request by by Desert Duffer there, who is also a a, a podcast host and also a, a lawyer by day. Part of the Patrick Reed defamation lawsuit, or Larry Klingman, Patrick Reed's lawyer's defamation lawsuit, not defamation, but antitrust lawsuit against the PJ Tour filed down in Florida that these were actually documents filed and available for the public inquiry to go find. Uh, and so the, the first piece that's super interesting is that no journalist was able to find these quote unquote leaked documents because no one had done the work to go file the request and, and actually get these documents that were freely available should you just put in the request. And the second piece that's super noteworthy is that these talking points that were prepared for Tiger Woods elicited a response from Tiger Woods. The first we've heard of him in nearly a month for him to come out and say, I, I've never seen these talking points and I wasn't at that meeting. I'll toss it to you, George. What do you make of uh, this, you know, lawyer doing an end run around, you know, the quote unquote journalists of, of golf media here and, and bamboozling them for a few days? And and secondly, what does this mean that the only thing we've heard about Tiger Woods is this, you know, denial that I was a part of this information? Well, the, the first thing is obviously the, you know, I guess this guy was, I, and I, I remember hearing about all the Patrick Reed lawsuits. I thought they had all gotten thrown out. I didn't know that any of them actually got to discovery to a stage where documents would be filed or part of motions and everything else. I mean, the, the reality is if, if these documents were filed, you know, as exhibits to motions, they're just available. I mean, they are, they are, anyone could just walk into the courthouse and well, when they used to have actually keep documents at courthouses, you can just walk right in and ask to see the file on hand and they're all in there now it's all online and you you know you pay five cents a page or whatever to to get whatever you want so you could this guy probably just went and checked the docket and saw well hey this thing's still kicking and lo and behold here's all the documents he probably spent you know twenty dollars maybe and they were all right there so the you know the fact that no one went to go look i think everyone's just kind of larry clayman's such a I guess to be polite and not end up in one of the lawsuits, an interesting character, um, and and people have their feelings about Patrick Reed and and what he was trying to do here. Uh, so you know, I think people just forgot. Honestly, I mean, I hadn't even given it any thought. The the tiger being so quiet and just sort of giving this definitely, I never said those words. Didn't go to that meeting. Um, this kind of goes back to like Rory was one of those guys who had 
the I just shot my I just saw my dog get shot look when all this news broke and everything else. And you know, I said it, I firmly believed that that tomorrow was more of a Trojan horse than a white knight. And they knew, and I and I'm sure Tiger's people knew the financial details and knew the information and knew the reality of what the tour was facing, you know, in two years time. And I am, I've always been confident that they had a plan to be the investor that now the PIF is going to be. And I think they just got an end run played on them. And, you know, we may never, ever know all the details, and this could have easily been why this deal got done because word got around that this was kind of their long-term strategy. And I think my suspicion would be if that were to happen, Jay would not be just assumed to be the CEO of this new thing. I think it would be cleaning house and installing their own leadership and their own board. And that is very likely not going to happen now. But if um, I tin, but if I tinfoil hat that a little bit, you could argue that Tiger's silence for the last four plus weeks could be that he is still thinking about that as a possibility, George, that they could still be the investor and that they could propose an alternative deal to what is currently now a framework agreement with PIF. And I mean, listen, anything's possible, right? If there's not a deal by 1231, it's it's all over. Um, but again, you know, I, I talked to, and I can't, I don't know if we talked about it on, on the pod or was just talking to, but, you know, if you're a private equity shop, you you have to know, you know, these guys have models. They they want returns. They They have sharp pencils. And, you know, they don't take a lot of bets that they aren't, pretty sure that they are going to win and so if if that group still thinks oh well we'll just be the new whatever and you know you know maybe in you know i don't want to speculate but like round up enough players that they just cause chaos and muck and a deal doesn't get done what private equity group wants to buy the fight the tour just walked away from because the tour knew they couldn't compete financially. Like say this private equity group brings, I'll, I'll say $10 billion to the table. That's a slow Tuesday for the PIF, right? That's not making capital calls and putting together a model. And again, and this comes back to a couple of things that I've always sort of rolled my eyes at when people said, hey, the end game of PIF is to get a seat at the table. These guys have had a seat at every table they've wanted for years through their own use of private equity and investing in lots of deals. They've invested in every single company in America that we know and love for the most part. Um, and you know they have seats at all the tables. And in large part, sometimes, and people don't get this, a lot of people love having seats at tables and no spotlights on those seats. And, you know, for a number of reasons, I know, you know, the Saudi Arabia may want a little bit more shine, but, you know, there's probably a plenty of number of reasons why they're very comfortable 
being at the table, but not getting a whole lot of press. Um, you know, they they run their country differently than the West likes countries to be run. And that's probably not going to dramatically change. Um, their version of, you know, social advancement is wildly different than what anyone here would think. And I don't think they want people getting, you know, thinking they have a seat at their table. And that's that's always part of this. So I don't know. I just think that I, I find it hard to believe that a, a an unknown private equity group could swoop in, basically make a pitch and do this and want to risk competing with someone that can just throw all the money at it. Yeah, no question. And it actually even takes me back to, you know, Peter Malnati's comment about, you know, the PGA tour, you know, 200 employees could, could, could get chopped if the tour, you know, shrunk, not doing this deal or, or whatever. Well, if a, if a true private equity group came in, 200 PGA tour employees would get chopped because that's how you drive profit as you reduce cost. Like, I mean, I don't know where the extra like investment return is actually coming from is just, I know there's different things you can do in business that you can't do in the 501 C six and, and, and all that kind of thing. But if you just start thinking about like running a for-profit entity, the first thing you do is reduce cost. Yep. Everyone knows there's like 20 billion in NFTs though. That's clear. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, right. And if you're like, a, you know, in the top 125, then you can get 10 grand for, for releasing your NFTs to, to the, to the marketplace. Now, now, one thing I think that we, you know, it's still extremely speculative. I, I do think there is probably going to be some version, some equity pool for players in this new entity because you can definitely do sure. that. Sure. What what that looks like, how that gets distributed, because you know that's one of the reasons the players need this independent review. Is like, what are right. those shares worth? How do they actually work? Like, when do I get paid on them? When do they vest? When do I? get rid of them. How does a rookie get shares? Like somebody's got to think about all that, that, I mean, and, and obviously that'll be a part of the creation of PGA tour enterprises, LLC, but that's the independent review that I would want as a player. I'm not sure I would, I mean, I don't have time to read a, a, a 500 page organizational document, you know, that, it, that spells all this stuff out. Somebody else needs to do that and tell me what it says. That's not the guy who's saying, Oh yeah, by the way, we have to do this. Yep. 100%. Well, hey, there is a lot that went on. It was one of those weeks I was joking with George before we hit record. We've had many of these weeks throughout the year where, you know, every day a new piece of information is either, you know, leaked, reported, <laughs> something happens where it, it feels like one of those weeks. Obviously, a lot happened inside the ropes that was, uh, you know, worth talking about, but it seemed like a lot more happened outside the ropes that was worth talking about. And so that leads me to what is next. Uh, this week on the PGA Tour, we have the John Deere Classic, uh, one of those events that is often talked about when you think about kind of the new hierarchy of PGA Tour events and designated events. And it seems like the John Deere is often used as the example of the, the other events on the PGA Tour. Uh, and then we've got on the Live side, Live London, which ironically was the, the very first event that Live got started with this time last year. So it's amazing to think about, you know, coming full circle to where we are today versus where we were back when balls were first in the air at live London and players were first suspended, et cetera. Um, 
And so, you know, more importantly, I would argue the event that ought to be on everyone's radar is the U.S. Women's Open going to historic Pebble Beach. Uh, you know, the the women's events, uh, the women's majors, I should say, are now going to, you know, more notable, more kind of famous and historic courses that we see on the men's rota of men's majors. Um, and we've got a special interview coming up with Chantel McCabe. So stay tuned for that episode coming very, very soon. But boys, this was a a fun one to unpack with you, and I look forward to. Well, wait, 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 wait. One, one, one thing that we didn't touch on because there was just so one much more happening. thing segment brought to you by George <laughs> Dell. We just sponsor for this. Uh, we do. I, I do. We 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 need to find one. We need to get someone someone on board for it. Um, the 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 video that came out and like the the hubbub of Rory's drop at the U.S. Open with the embedded ball and that it wasn't placed properly when he hit his shot, when he got relief. Can, can someone help? Because I, I kind of saw it. And again, there was so much else going on. I didn't give it a ton of, of thought. I, I still, I still have a hard time believing that a, a wedge coming into a grassy vertical hill can embed, but putting that aside, there's a rules official on site who said it was. So we're going to assume that that was all legit in there. What was it about? Like what happened? I mean, I can I, I, I can get started and Billy can fill in the cracks. I, I definitely think those are areas where, you know, it's sort of like stacked sawed faces. They're not exactly vertical. They're a little more, you know, canted, if you will. And I think there are softer areas of the golf course with that like fine fescue grass. So I do take him at his word. And the rules official was there to test the surface as well to say that this was an embedded ball. So let's assume that it that it actually was embedded. The crux of this, uh, you know, issue, if you want to call it that, is that the nearest point of relief should have been essentially directly next to the spot where it embedded. So there was, you know, essentially some grass, some piece of rough that should have been the nearest point of relief. And from that nearest point of relief, then a club length is measured. And then you're no closer to the hole within that semicircle of a club length where you can drop the ball. Now you do have to drop the ball outside of the bunker. So you do have to find the area that's on the general area, not inside the bunker where you can drop it. And the crux of the controversy is that instead of, you know, finding that spot right next to where it embedded, they went, you know, what looks like, you know, maybe 12, 16, 18 inches to the right of that and then measured a club length. And the and the crux of maybe people's complaints here is that maybe it gave Rory a flatter lie, maybe a more even uh, stance with which to navigate the lie. It's It's tough to know unless we had like a direct overhead view or like very detailed sort of view of, of the, of the surface that we were dealing with as to how much of an advantage this ultimately was. But what the USGA came and said is that, Hey, in retrospect, this was not adjudicated correctly, that the ruling should have been that the nearest point was directly next to his embedded ball and one club length measured from there. And instead they went kind of the nearest point in, in the sort of ear of the bunker nearby. Yeah, I think that's, you know, Brian, you hit it there. I mean, the, the question really is only how did he gain, you know, six inches, 12 inches, 18 inches further away from where the ball actually embedded? And did he, you know, have a better stance because of that? I mean, just, you know, kind of anecdotally looking at the faces of those bunkers, they were near vertical, not exactly vertical. So, I don't think it could be 18 inches, you, you know, I mean, like it could maybe have been six, right? So basically instead of having the nearest point be kind of a tuft of grass right next to where it was embedded, they went to the top of the kind of rough, almost like outside the bunker, think, you know, at the top of the face of the bunker 
So I have to assume that's only like six inches. He still gets a flat stance, in my opinion, looking at it, and he still makes bogey. So who I was going to say, it, it's funny maybe if, <laughs> if if he would have had like a foot sort of, you know, outside or on on the on the angled face of that bunker. But in the end, he, he doesn't get that ball up and down. He ultimately does not win the event or go to a playoff. So it's a bit moot only to say, you know, man, <laughs> you know, the most high profile ruling at the most high profile event that the USJ runs at, and they gooned it up. So it's not a great look. Uh, and it's one to to think about in the future when, when guys get these rulings, like, do you need to call in a second official to make sure you're not, you're not screwing this one up? Well, and, and it really starts to bode the opinion. I mean, I go all the way back to the Dustin Johnson at Oakmont you start to go like, well, who's the committee and when is the committee's decision final? You, you, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, when you have like on site, you know, on, course officials who are not the head of rules for the usga um you know and then obviously hey look it's just like every other sport right you know you're grading umpires you're you're grading referees and you're you're reviewing calls that maybe weren't right in in an nfl game and in a major league baseball game and and so you're trying to get better so that you know that's the other piece of this for sure all right well, ultimately okay. ultimately a non-issue right i mean like i think if he's if he's got one foot in the bunker one foot out of the bunker he's got to hit it left-handed who cares he makes six and he made six game over yeah if if he had ended up going to a playoff or had won i think this is much more of a of a big deal, but right now it's just sort of like a lesson learned like let's not do that again usga but hey boys this was a, a fun one to review what went on inside and outside the ropes and i look forward to seeing you fellas this time next week See enjoy ya. enjoy pebble beach yep. Thanks for listening to the Living It Up podcast. Follow us on the Twitters at Living It Up Pod. See you there.